This week I had an opportunity as I was studying to be able to have the uh, funeral of President Bush in the background on my computer. And when the different eulogies and the people would come up to speak, partly just out of honor for a man who served our country in greatness and partly out of sort of professional curiosity as to see how they would uh, do the funeral, I would switch over and, and listen to what was being said. There were some incredibly poignant moments in that funeral. Um, just having it within the National Cathedral, incredible building, just beautiful. There were some emotional times, I remember, when President Bush, the son, was praising President Bush, his father. And at the very end, when he broke up and spoke of the honor of having his father as his father. There were other times, the eulogy that gave sort of a history of President Bush. But one that struck me, maybe because it was the pastor, uh, Russell Leverson, that said it, maybe because as he was doing it, you had a sense of where he was going with the story. But one of the stories he told was not so much about President Bush, but about James Baker. It was the last few hours of President Bush's life. And his dear friend decided to minister to his dying friend. And here's the story as it was told during that memorial service. Sitting with us was someone the president liked to call his little brother, James Baker, and his wife, Susan. As I said, there have been wonderful hugs and kind words throughout the day, kisses throughout the day. Toward the end, Secretary Baker and I were sitting on a sofa next to one another a few steps away, and he whispered to me, you know, that man changed my life. A bit later, Secretary Baker was at the foot of the president's bed, and toward the end, Jim Baker rubbed and stroked the president's feet for perhaps half an hour. The president smiled at the comfort of his dear friend. Here I witnessed a world leader who was serving a servant who had been our world's leader. And what came to mind was Jesus. On that last night before his own crucifixion, having said everything there was to say, he wrapped a towel around his waist and without words, he washed his disciples' feet. As Jesus finished, he said, I've set an example for you. Do as I have done. Serve one another. By this, the world will know you're my disciples if you serve and if you love one another. The poignancy of that, I think, was twofold. One was to watch the shot towards James Baker as he just broke into tears. But 
But the other was who he was. This was a man who was the Secretary of State, one of the most powerful positions in the entire world. This is a man who was Chief of Staff in the White House, who controlled who got to see the President and what he heard and gave advice to the President. Later, there's a funny story that he tells how George Bush, the President Bush would listen to his advice to a point, and then finally he'd get tired of it, and he would look at uh, Baker and say to him, uh, so if you're so smart, how comes I'm president and you're not? The amazing humility of this man, out of love for his friend, to rub his feet in his dying moments. That's a picture that's astounding. But it's nothing in comparison to the passage that Leverson read and that Adam read this morning. Our mind goes to Jesus and that very night after Judas had already agreed to betray him and as he took off his outer garment and put on that towel and went disciple to disciple to disciple. And with a basin of water and a towel around his waist, he washed the filth off of their feet. As Jesus was doing it, he said, you call me Lord, you call me Rabbi, you call me Teacher. But he said to the disciples, you don't really understand what's going on. Later they would. For you see, as the chorus we sang, one of my favorites, that the king of glory came. This wasn't just a human being. This was God himself in human form on his knees before a group of foolish men willing to wash their feet and serve them out of love. Not just one who rules the world or was significant in the power of the world, but one who created the cosmos was willing to wash the feet of those disciples. As we were driving to church this morning, my wife was talking about a conversation that she had with my granddaughter. And they were talking about, what's the, what does Christmas mean? What's all this stuff about? And, of course, they began to talk about the birth of baby Jesus and how Jesus was born in a manger and how we remember how he came to 
give us gifts. And that's wonderful for a four-year-old. And that's a four-year-old's understanding of what Advent and Christmas is all about. But beloved, I want us to know so much more. Because there's infinitely more than a babe in a manger. It is that. It is Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and the angels and all that takes place. But it is infinitely more. Eternally more. And I fear that we get so caught up in baby Jesus meek and mild that we lose the wonder of exactly what was going on. For you see, when you look at the Advent story, it's not simply the birth of a child. It's something that you and I simply cannot fully understand. Though we can understand, we will never completely comprehend it. It's God incarnate. God in flesh. God taking upon himself humanity and doing all the things we read about in the Gospels. And for a few moments this morning, I'm going to ask us to be a bit theological. I want us to think beyond, and again, I'm not putting it down, and we'll probably sing some point a, 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 a carol that talks about baby Jesus meek and mild. But I want us to go beyond that. I remember many years ago reading an article that said one of the problems with Advent sermons is they tend not to address the incredible theology. And we want to take just a few moments to do that. And we'll kind of get to the pragmatic at the end, but to think through exactly what was going on. For you see, when you come to the story, we need to understand that the one who came, the one who was born, the one who was conceived within the womb of Mary, was God himself. That God in Christ came. And in Galatians chapter 4, the passage that we're sort of in as we look at this Advent season, Paul, in six little phrases, takes Advent and expands it beyond a manger. And in six phrases, takes us from eternity past in the council of the Godhead. to eternity future where we spend forever with God. Galatians 4, and beginning there in verse 4, Paul writes these words. He says, but when the time had fully come, that's the counsel of God, 
God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer slaves, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This morning, we're going to take two of those phrases. We looked last week at in the fullness of time, but this week, we look at the next two phrases that takes the reality of the advent and puts it where it belongs, in the wonder of eternity, when Paul says, God sent his son, born of a woman. And in that, we're astounded. Because the first phrase says this, that God sent his son. It declares that the one who came was God who exists in all of eternity. Somehow, I can begin to kind of grasp eternity future. The one that absolutely blows me away is how do you conceive of eternity past but the one who came existed eternally he is God now the phrase that is used there when it talks about that God sent his son The word sent there can simply be used of a prophet. God sent a prophet, or God sent an apostle, or God sent this one out. But when you begin to look at this passage, you begin to understand that there's something more going on. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One, remember, this is a creedal statement. This was an affirmation. This was something that the church repeated over and over again, maybe during the time of baptism or maybe during their gatherings on a, on a Sunday afternoon or when, whenever it was they came together. One of the things they did was to repeat that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And they would repeat it. And there's significance. And if you've ever written out affirmations, or you've ever written out something in a creedal statement, you know that every word is pregnant with meaning. That there's life and meaning beyond what's on the surface. But the other reason why I think it's more than just God sent someone out, but the idea that God sent his son, that the idea of eternity past, is because of the contrast. You wouldn't say God sent a prophet born of a woman. You'd go, of course. How else was he born? The emphasis here is not so much on the sending, though that's a part of it, It's that God sent his son. And we come to understand as you read through the New Testament, as you read the theologies of the early church, as you read even in the first century, they understood that Jesus was God.
Now, hold on. See a little phrase there, ontological trinity? I warned some people I was going to use that word this morning. Let me explain it a little bit. Remember this verse? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word, which we know to be Jesus, was with God. They existed together. But he also was God. And he was with God at at the very beginning of everything. An eternity past. And what John is talking about is the very essence of, of God, we believe just like the Jews. We believe in what was called the Shema. Hear, it's a word for listen, hear. And what did they want Israel to hear? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One God. Now we understand a Trinitarian reality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they are God. One God. Explain it. I can't. I can proclaim it. I can say that Jesus was God. Jesus is God. One being. One essence. But we also understand through the revelation of the New Testament that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all making up God. All are fully God. They are God. One God. That is what we call the ontological trinity. That in their very nature, they are God. But then John goes beyond that. And he begins to declare this. Through him, who's him? Not so much God there, though the one who is God, but the word. Through him, all things were made. Without him, that is the word, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light, the revelation of who God is. And the idea is that within this one God and three persons, in their very essence, they are God singular. But how they interact with their creation, how they interact in the process of salvation, each person within the Godhead, again, you go, you know, it, it, it blows your mind. But each one has a different aspect that they play. God is in all of it. God came. God died. God became incarnate. But somehow, it was the second person of the Godhead that was specifically involved. Now, again, we're, again for those of you who love theology, you have to always hold both of them. 
You have to hold the ontological trinity, meaning God is God. Jesus is God. Fully God. Totally God. Always God. The Father is God. Always God. The Spirit is God. Always God. You have to hold on to that. And at the same time, understand that in the council of eternity past, within the trinity of God, Counsel was taken that one would be the sender. One would be the one who went. And one would be the one who reveals it. That's the economic trinity. If you don't hold both of them, you end up, again, those of you who love theology, with modalism. Or if you don't hold both of them, you end up with what's called subordinationism. They're both true. And here's where it becomes important. Hold on. I know it's theology. It's even the theology that's a little bit more on the heavy side. When you begin to understand it and you read God sent his son, you understand that God, in God the Father, sent God the Son. Now, that little preposition in, I didn't know what preposition to use. Was it through? Was it by? Was it? And I chose to use the word that Paul uses. In 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 5 and verse 19. When Paul was describing this, he said it this way. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. God, ontological trinity. In the Father, economic trinity. Sent the Son. Do you know what that means? That within the Godhead, there was counsel where one would know the pain of sending the other. To suffer. Many of you know that when we were in England, my granddaughter ripped open her chin and had to get stitches. And I watched her mom and dad as they sent her to get surgery. It broke their hearts. the knowledge that they were sending her to go through the difficulty and struggle of of the surgery and the stitches. and They didn't choose it. The father said, I will be like a parent sending a child to battle, knowing he will suffer. But God... In the Son is the one who came. The one who existed as a God in eternity was sent by the Father and came. That's what Advent is about. Yes, Jesus meek and mild. Yes, the baby Jesus. But it's God who came. God, the King of glory. God, the Lord Almighty. God who spoke creation 
into existence. The second person of the Godhead took upon himself humanity so that he could come and provide salvation. Who provided salvation? God. And in that one little phrase, God sent his son, the wonder of eternity is open to us. But how did God come? How did it happen? How did that take place? Well, Paul tells us. God sent his son. Next four words. Born of a woman. And as Paul is developing this incredible theology, as he's he's reminding us of the creeds, as he's reminding us of what the early church taught, he's proclaiming this, the second person of the Godhood, the economic aspect of the Trinity, who is fully God, became fully man. Became fully human. He never stopped being fully God. But to that divine reality was added full humanity. Whatever it means to be a human was a part of the very nature of Jesus in his humanity. Now that phrase, born of a woman, some think it means the virgin birth, but probably not. It's just simply saying he was born like any other human was born. Now there were some unique circumstances with shepherds and and wise men. With the birth of my children, I don't remember any shepherds. Hopefully there was one wise man, the doctor. Don't remember any gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Remember paying a lot of gold out. but uh... So there was a unique circumstance. But you know what? Jesus was born just like my kids. That after conception moved from the confinement of a womb to the broadness of the world. And when that phrase is used, born of a woman, you can read it often in Scripture. It's used a number of different times. It doesn't speak of the virgin birth. Here it just speaks of birth. Jesus was just like you and I in terms of his humanity. In Scripture, in that passage in John, and we didn't have time to read the rest of it, but in John chapter 1, as you continue to read through there, John is describing the the coming of Jesus. He's describing what took place as, as Jesus moved from the realities of eternity to the reality of creation. And it says there in John chapter 1, and particularly as you come down to verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacling among us. 
And in seeing Jesus, we see the glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says that it's not only that he was born of a virgin, and Paul is probably assuming that here. But the emphasis is upon the fact that he became human. Not just this. Not just in flesh. But fully human. With all of the realities of being a human. Jesus sweated. As a teenager, Jesus probably had acne. He was a carpenter. He probably had those blue thumbs you get every so often. When you miss the peg and you whack your thumb. Jesus grew. In size. And here's the one that really is interesting. In knowledge. Because in his humanity, he was fully human. And so the scripture declares that Jesus' humanity was like ours in all ways, but with one thing missing. There was no sin. No choice of sin, no sin nature. And that's because you don't need to be sinful to be human. That came after the fall. And so the writer of Hebrews says it this way. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And that he might make atonement for the sin of his people. He had to be human in order to pay the price of humanity. Hold on to that. We're going to get to that as we get to the application. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. What are you struggling with today? What's got you hurting today? The God of the universe understands. Not simply in knowledge, but in experience. Because God, the ontological expression of the Trinity... In Christ, the economic expression of the Trinity took upon himself flesh and knows what it's like to live our lives. Now, though he was the God-man, the scriptures are clear that as he lived his earthly life, he wasn't dependent upon his own deity. He had it. It was there. It never stopped. But he lived his life just like you and I do. He just depended upon the Father through the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And only a few occasions in all of the Gospels do you get a glimpse of his deity. During all the rest of the time, he lived just like us in our humanity. He knows what it's like. He cares. He lived it out. Now, there's a huge theological statement of that. Some of you know the Westminster Confession. And those two little phrases, God sent his son, born of a woman, take an entire paragraph in just a moment to explain. And the Westminster Confession says it this way, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that's ontological, is truly the eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father in the fullness of time. He took on himself the nature of man. That's economic trinity. With all the essential qualities and ordinary frailties of man. Except that he was sinless. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, out of her substance. He was human. These two complete, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person of Jesus without being altered, disunited, disunited, or jumbled. The person Jesus is truly God and truly man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. You want another theological statement? That's called the hypostatic union. Woo! It just means he was totally God and totally man. And he knows what it's like. God knows what it's like to live our lives. Now, I love theology. I enjoy reading theology. That's probably diagnosable in the mental, you know, diagnostic manuals. But one of the things that I've learned about theology is there's always a question you must ask. It's two words. So what? So what? All right, we can walk out of here and impress our neighbors, although they'll probably not even, you know, care. But you can talk about the economic trinity, and you can talk about the ontological trinity, and you can talk about how that the, onto, the, um, the economic trinity was expressed through the hypostatic union, and you never want to go, woo So what? We need to answer the question, why is this so important to understand? And it is meaningful to us that God, the Father, sent the Son. And God in the Son became incarnate and died for you and me. Why is it important? One, because Jesus is the God-man we see the inherent value of our humanity. Humans are important. God would take on what this is. 
that being made in the image of God means that God could take upon himself my humanity. There is a value and a dignity and an honor that comes simply with the fact of being an image bearer, simply with being the fact that we are human beings. We are the epitome of God's creation. And there is value in that. There is value in that when we begin to talk about the unborn human child and the inherent dignity and value that is to be found there. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking with a person who was just sexually abused beyond description. She's been dealing with it for a number of years. And as we were talking, and this person was kind of reminiscing and thinking through some of the events. And as she was doing that, I asked this person, what, what was the message you heard in all of that? She said this, I heard that all I was was a piece of garbage. All the experiences of her life, all of the experiences of her parents and where they lived and the way that she was treated and the things that would go on. She said, I just felt like a piece of garbage. To be used, devoured, and thrown away. Do you know what I could tell her? I could say, that's not true. At the moment you were conceived, there was honor and dignity, and value, and worth. And how do I know it? Because God himself would take upon himself humanity. There is dignity and value in being a human. And so it affects people and how we treat them from the very moment of conception. It speaks of how we treat people at the end of their lives and the value in that human life. It speaks of the dignity we bring to anyone in every situation, whether they are the prisoner or whether they are the president. The incarnation says there is value in our humanity. That in no way in its coreness, not in its sinfulness, would prevent God from taking on that humanity. Because Jesus is the God-man, we have an accurate understanding of what God is like. When we read the Old Testament, sometimes we get confused and we begin to believe that God is just some ogre in the sky waiting for his people to cross the line so he can stomp them out. John said that Jesus is the full revelation of the Father. If you want to know what the Father is, look at what Jesus is. Look how he treated people. How did he treat the woman at the well who had been married five times and was now living with a man? How did he treat that outcast who the rest of the society said isn't even worth being able to come to the well during the time when the rest of the women were there? How did he treat this woman living in immorality in the fullest sense? 
He treated her with respect and with dignity. Yes, he addressed her struggle. But he said to her, woman, I have a cup from which you can drink that will quench your thirst. Not here, but in your very soul. How did he treat uh, um, Zacchaeus? Remember, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he? Who was a total social outcast. One who took the wrong political view. Who was cheating and, and conning people out of their money through the power of his position within the Roman Empire as a tax collector. How did Jesus treat him in the midst of his struggles? Hey, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to spend some time with you. The message of Jesus is, I love humans. I don't want their sin. I want to move them beyond But God values his creation. God is a God of love and mercy and grace. How do I know? Look at Jesus. Where are you struggling today? Where is sin overcoming your life? Where are you losing the battle? God isn't up there going, He's saying, child, what must we do to move you away from that which is destroying you? What must we do to draw you to myself that you might know love and mercy and grace and healing? Because Jesus is fully human, we can know how to please God. How we can live a life in a way that, that, that brings a smile to our Father's face, if you like. That passage in John chapter 13 where Jesus is an example of the way the Father would have us to live. How? As I have served you, what does Jesus say? Serve one another. When we suffer for doing what's right, not striking out in anger and rage. Forgiving those who would hurt us. And we can live that way because Jesus was human like us. It's a legitimate example. But of all of this, It's the last implication that strikes me the most. Because Jesus is fully God. God is imminently involved in our redemption. Remember about 15 years ago, I believe the book was called The Cross of Christ. I I didn't take time to look up the title. Written by John Stott. And in there, he's talking about that passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 19, where he looks at... And God 
was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. And he said, grammatically, you can also write it this way. God in Christ. And he begins to talk about that ontological and that economic trinity. And what you begin to understand is that this salvation wasn't brought about by some distant God way out there who said, okay, I got to meet the standards of my holiness. Let me find the right person and we'll get him to do it. No, it was God himself. God is not disinterested or legalistic or cruel. But it is God himself in Christ that satisfied his own justice. It was the lawmaker saying, you can't pay the penalty. The law has to be because of my holiness. But out of love and mercy, I will pay the cost. Because it's God in Christ It's not man that satisfies God's wrath. It's God that satisfies God's wrath. He paid it. He did it. The cosmic law had to be dealt with. God's holiness had to be satisfied. And God himself in Christ said, I will do it. And finally, the one who takes our place is not simply another human being. Not just simply creation. But it's the creator himself who becomes our representative to pay for our sins. What's Advent about? That God in Christ was redeeming the world. That God himself was the one that made it possible for us to become people of God. That God himself came to show those who are his people how to live. And that God himself And the person of Christ showed us his gentleness, his kindness, his grace, and his mercy. God in Christ came, comes, and is coming again. Father, thank you for two little phrases that open up the reality of salvation in ways that are beyond our full comprehension. Father, all are invited to become your people through accepting what you accomplished, what you paid for, through you sending God, your Son, and revealing it through God, your Spirit. There's someone here who's never trusted your son as their savior. We invite them this very moment to do so, to talk to somebody here. And Father, for those of us who know that relationship or who are growing in that relationship, help us to 
understand more and more the significance of what is accomplished through the coming of your son in that first advent and living in anticipation of your final return when we live in the fullness of your second advent. Until then, keep us faithful for your honor and glory. Amen.